Well, we're kind of getting close to the end of the Song of Solomon. And as we do, I think we're beginning to see some major themes and patterns that are starting to kind of rise to the surface when we kind of consider what the author's been communicating as a whole. We looked at one of those things last week, one of those patterns. It's that repeated movement from affirmation to affection to intimacy. We saw that it was repeated and that that pattern seemed to be increasingly fulfilling for this husband and wife in the song, but never completely satisfying because it's a repeated pattern. And we talked about last week how it's not meant to be, (laughs) that the loving intimacy in marriage is incredibly wonderful, but it actually points us to something much better. It highlights the the longing in our soul that only Jesus can satisfy. I think it was Augustine who once said, You made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And I think that's at the heart of the, the song as well. And so we look to Jesus, the the only true lover of our soul. And as we deepen in our experience of of that love that we receive from him, it inevitably turns outward in our love towards one another. And this is especially true in marriage. In fact, it is the key foundation to a strong and healthy marriage. As you move away from love that's more self-interested to a love that is more self-sacrificing. And I think this is actually, if we look closely, a trend that we see develop throughout the song as well. Because let me just uh, highlight some things that I think are worth uh, observing. When we first began the song, you'll notice that there were a lot of first-person pronouns. Statements like, I am a rose of Sharon. I am lovesick. I went into the garden. It's kind of looking at the the love of their marriage from a personal, first-person perspective. But then, as the song continues, the the I shifted to a you. Things like, you are altogether beautiful. You made my heart beat faster. You are a garden spring. We went from my beloved is mine, something I possess, to I am my beloved's something that I give, something that I surrender. It's a subtle, but I think really important shift from this idea of self-interest to self-sacrifice. It's the evidence, I believe, of a, a maturing marriage relationship as it moves from individual desires to shared affection to mutual surrender. It's a transition from I to you And then as we'll see this morning, to us. A kind of metamorphosis into this one flesh relationship. They're growing and learning what it means to become one. And we see that happen throughout the song. So before we go to the word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. So Father, as we do come before you this morning, would you help us see some of these truths embedded within the song to, to come to light in our hearts and our minds? 
that, that we begin to recognize the, the ways that you are wanting to, to shape our understanding, not only of the, the love that we are to have within the context of a marriage relationship, but even how that relates to our relationship with one another, and most importantly, how it relates to our relationship with you. Would you lead us and guide us into a better understanding of that truth? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 7, and I'd love for you to follow along with me uh, where we left off last, beginning in verse 11. Verse 11. Here the woman is speaking, and she says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance and over, and over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved." As you read those first couple of verses, I hope it jumped out at you like it did for me, because there was a phrase that was repeated three different times in those first two verses. Let us go out. Let us spend the night. Let us see. We've transitioned from I to you to me, and now to us. They're growing in what it means to become one. All throughout this section of the song, we see the, the, the woman beckoning her beloved. She takes the initiative to take him away, away from all the, the worldly distractions and to a place that they can be together, a quiet place. It sounds like a, 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 a cabin somewhere in the countryside, which sounds pretty awesome to me. Here again, she uses the same language, in fact, the same words that she talked about in our passage last week. It's figurative language that's intended to put kind of those hidden emotions of the heart on full display. She says in verse 2, let's look to see where the vine has budded. Let's look to see where the, the blossoms have opened and where the pomegranates have bloomed. There, she says, is where I'll give you my love. Again, like we talked about last week, they've been through some hard seasons in their marriage, but instead of focusing on failures and, and past regrets, she looks forward with hope-filled expectations. Because you'll notice, she didn't identify any weeds that are in the garden, and we all know they're there, right? Every garden has weeds. But she says, let's look for the evidence of new life. Buds and blossoms and blooms. And this is important because where we focus will often determine what will flourish. Think about that. Where we focus will often determine what will flourish. If all we see is the negative, then those are the things that will most assuredly begin to grow. But if we set our minds on things that are good, things that are right, things that are true, then, then those are the things that, that, that begin to take root in our heart and in our mind. It, it reminds me, actually, of the example of Jesus. We see it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, 
who, here it is, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. See, we all know there was plenty of evil and injustice that surrounded Jesus in his life and ministry, but that's not where he set his mind, is it? It was the joy that was set before him. It was the the promise of a future hope. That's what we see happening, I believe, within the words of the song. Instead, Instead of occupying her mind with a regrettable past, the wife is setting her mind and her heart on a hope-filled future. And she says to her husband, she's inviting him, let's go to that place together. So yes, marriage can be difficult at times. And yes, it does take work, but that doesn't mean it needs to be burdensome. We don't need, now hear me on this, we don't need to fix all of our problems in a day. We've committed, made a covenant promise to spend a lifetime to work on those things together. But in order for us to grow in love, we must be willing to look for the good and actually highlight the positive that we see in our spouse. We need to speak that out loud. We need to say to our spouse, you know, I love the way you really honored me in the conversation that we had with our friends. I mean, it really made me feel valued and appreciated. I just want to thank you for doing that. It wants them to do well. Instead of watching for places where they fall short, we need to highlight the things that they do right. Extending grace to each other as we learn how to love well together. This is about us It's growing in our understanding of what it means to become one. Because you will notice in verse 13, look at that. It says that she does basically everything she can to make the relationship inviting. The figurative language is painting this picture where the door is donned with wonderful fruits and fragrances. Things, it says, that she has stored up with her husband in mind. She wants him to be drawn into the relationship, invited into that marriage covenant with love and acceptance. She's not focused on what he needs to do to better love her. She's creating a safe place where they can grow in love together. This is no longer about I or you or me. This is about us. This is about learning to become one. Look at how she continues in verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 1. She says, Oh, that you were like my brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outdoors, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me either. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, who used to instruct me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. Now, in our cultural context, these verses sound a little strange, don't they? Why in the world would the wife want to be the sister of her husband, right? It's a little odd, wouldn't you say? But, but she tells us, she says that, that she wants to be able to show her affection towards her husband in public. But in that culture, 
it would not be acceptable. She could actually get away with kissing her brother in public, and that would be very acceptable. But she would actually be despised if she did the same towards her husband. Because remember, in that culture, family came first. It was the, by far, highest priority relationship. And so if you think about it, the wife is really making a very bold statement here. In fact, in my opinion, I think she's making a very biblical statement here. Because according to God's design, marriage is given greater priority than family. We see that in Genesis chapter 2, 24, when God first ordained the relationship of marriage. And he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In other words, the marriage relationship has to become the most priority relationship for that couple. Because growing to become one begins with learning how to leave and cleave. Still giving love and respect to your family, but always giving preference to your spouse. And so I think this is a challenging dynamic, even in our world today. So I want to unpack this a little bit, especially for those who are fairly early in your marriage or those who are still learning this who've been married a little longer. After all, we've probably at some level grown up, for most of us, in families where we invited the input of our parents as we made decisions. It's a good thing. In healthy relationships, we wanted to have their perspective. But now that you're married, the person who has the most important opinion is your spouse. That's where you go first, and that's who you trust most. When we leave and cleave, we learn to listen to our spouse. And even more important, we we learn to go to the Lord together instead of relying on other people. The more we spend time in prayer, the more we become one flesh. I'm convinced of this. In fact, I've often told people who are kind of growing in their marriage relationship or in a hard time, I'll ask them the question, do you pray together? Because I'm convinced that it is one of the most important things that we do in marriage in our efforts to grow to become one is spending time in mutual dependence before the Lord in prayer. And it's really important if you're a parent as well, to understand this equally. Because if you think about it, there's nothing that we want more in our life than to see our kids do well, right? And we, of course, have lived a lot of life and we have a lot of experience. And so if they would just do what we tell them to do, everything's going to be fine, right? Isn't that the way it works? Well, it shouldn't. In fact, it's probably good that we withhold our opinion until they ask for our advice. To be a good listener. To ask good questions. But ultimately, encourage our married children to make their decisions together. And support them when they do, even if it's different than what you would have done. When two people are married, 
They must leave and cleave in order to become one. That's what we see in the song. As the woman prioritizes her marriage relationship even over her family, she's choosing to live in accordance with God's design where the marriage really is the most important relationship in her life apart from her relationship with the Lord. Let's look how it continues in verse three. It says, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Now, these two verses, or these verses should sound very, very familiar to you because it's been repeated throughout the song, hasn't it? Verse 3 is actually identical to what we've seen in previous verses. In my mind, I read those words when it talks about this loving embrace, and it's almost like a, a wedding portrait. It's like a picture of the, the man and the woman, the husband and the wife in this relationship together as he has his hand behind her head and his right hand around her waist. It's a beautiful picture of love. And in my mind, it's like he's speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem. And he's saying, she's saying, come here, come here. I want you to look at this. Look at this picture and pay attention to what you see. Notice the tenderness of his care. Look closely at the love that you see in his eyes. Do you see the, the security and the, the protection in his embrace? I want you to see it. Because what you are observing is a beautiful gift of God. It's a marriage made in accordance with God's design. And there's goodness built within it. And then we have the familiar warning in the verses that follow, follow, but there's a very subtle difference here. Instead of saying, I adjure you, which is what we've read in previous verses, which means to appeal or to instruct, in this verse, it's more like a demand, isn't it? She's basically saying, give me your attention. I want you to swear to me. Do not awaken love until it's time. And here's what I think is happening here. As I've already mentioned, there's this growing intimacy that we see developing in this marriage relationship within the song. A maturing of that one flesh relationship according to God's design. And with a deepening intimacy comes a growing sense of urgency. It's as if she's saying... Let me have your attention. This is really important. Don't do anything, and I do mean anything, that would disrupt the beauty of this gift in your life. She's pleading for the purity of their covenant relationship of love. She's insisting on them to, to protect the sanctity of marriage. The one flesh relationship between a husband and a wife. Because here's the reality. When we compromise purity, we will sacrifice intimacy. Please don't miss that. When we compromise purity, we will sacrifice intimacy. We willfully forfeit 
God's best for us. Choosing to be intimate outside of the marriage relationship doesn't enhance your relationship. It robs you. The impurity of pornography, rampant within our society today, is a disease that will poison your marriage. When we compromise purity, we sacrifice intimacy. And so let me say with the same bold assurance that she spoke of, please don't do anything, and I mean anything, that will disrupt the purity of God's design of the marriage relationship. Because the boundaries that he's put in place are crystal clear. Marriage is a lifetime commitment between a man and a woman. It's based on a covenant relationship, a covenant commitment that removes all conditions for sickness, during sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, when things are good and when things are hard. It's a sacred marriage because it's the only place where the gift of intimacy is permitted. Anything else, anything else is a defiling disorder that will only bring destruction. Please don't miss that. Because the world is telling you a completely different story. And you've just got to choose which one you believe is true. One that comes from the very mouth of God or that one that is spoken around the world today. I'm telling you this morning that anything else then God's design for the marriage relationship is a defiling disorder that will only bring destruction. In fact, the clarity of God's command when it comes to marriage is so clear, it reminds me of his instructions in the garden, right? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, he says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, it's not really complicated, is it? God basically says, look, I've given you everything so that you may flourish. I only have one requirement, just one. It's really simple. You just have to trust that what I say is true. That's the only requirement. But then the enemy comes along. And he suggests that there's not actually a penalty to your compromise. Remember Satan said, surely you won't die? <laughs> and he was literally dead wrong. He convinces Adam and Eve that there's something better outside the boundaries of God's design. He said, by eating the forbidden fruit, you will actually gain the wisdom of God. And again, he's wrong. But he's a liar. He's a deceiver. It's the only language he speaks. And he's still whispering those same lies today, convincing you and I that there are really no consequences to our sin. I mean, people do much worse. There's something better outside the boundaries of God's design, but once again, he's wrong. So, so I want to ask you this, and this is something I've brought up before, and I just find it fascinating. 
And so my question is this, do you think it's a coincidence, given what we just talked about, about what took place in the garden, do you think it's a coincidence that we see all the imagery of the garden within the Song of Solomon? Is that just a coincidence? Or maybe is God not reminding us it's still the same choice? I promise God says, I promise to give you everything you need and to flourish within the design of my creation. The only requirement is one thing, is that you trust what I say is true. Maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you hear that and you say, gosh, you know, it seems kind of hidden within the, the context of poetry. So why didn't God be more clear about that? Well, actually, he did. He couldn't have been more clear through the life and work of Jesus Christ because Jesus made the very same claim. John 10.10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life, and here it is, and have it abundantly. In other words, I want you to flourish in a life-giving relationship with me. In John 3.16, we're familiar with this, Right? Whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. In other words, your faith in me gives you everything you could possibly need. There's only one requirement. that you trust what I say is true. And so I think maybe the application, probably for most every person in the room this morning, is really simple. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. No matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, repent and believe that God makes all things new. That he can restore what the locusts have eaten. That he can bring beauty from ashes, that he can bring the dead to life. Those are promises that he's made. The only requirement is that we trust what he says is true. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you this morning, we recognize how easy it is to fall prey to the lies of the enemy as he speaks them pervasively throughout the world in which we live. And he baits us with this deception into small little compromises. And yet, Lord, we know that they are not without consequence. If nothing else, we were reminded of that fact this morning. And so, Lord, would you help us repent and believe, to recognize those places where we have walked outside the boundaries of your design, that we have selfishly pursued something better than what you have promised. And Lord, I pray that we would return like the prodigal, believing that you make all things new, that you restore what the locusts have eaten, that you bring beauty from ashes, that you resurrect the dead to become life, and that you would do that in our hearts and lives this morning as we put our trust in you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.
complete surrender, complete forgiveness, complete assurance. Doesn't that deserve our complete trust? And I want you to think about the context of the song and how lovingly the wife invites her husband into an ever-deepening one relationship within the context of marriage. And I want you to look beyond the beauty of that picture and see the very same, this very same invitation from your loving father who is inviting you, not looking at the regrets of the past, but looking forward to the hope of the future so that we become increasingly one with him. Abiding in Christ as the vine abides in the branch because apart from him, we can do nothing. He is inviting us to flourish in that relationship with him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time together this morning, for the gift of your love that invites us into the hope-filled future where you don't look at our past. In fact, you say our sins are as far as the east is from the west. You look forward to the hope-filled future, and you're inviting us into something better. So, Lord, may we put our full and complete trust in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.